We thank you that you have overcome, that you have won the victory. We will shout that out. Every tribe and tongue and nation will bow and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Father, we come into your courts this morning desiring to feel your presence, to hear your word, and to be changed by the truth and your love. We invite you, we welcome you this morning. Come, Lord Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 to 12. Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 to 12. It can be found in, on page 824 of the Bible of the seat that you're sitting on. Not the one in front of you, but the one that you're sitting on. Page 824. So Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 to 12. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by saying, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate." They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been made so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name's Mike. Welcome to Trinity Community Church. Happy to be worshiping with you this morning. So last week, I had like 20, 25 verses to preach, and somehow I feel like there's more to talk about in these 12 verses than there were both last week and the week previous. So we have a ton to talk about this morning, and there are topics that also require a lot of sensitivity. And so to sort of set our expectations for what this morning will look like, I'm going to be talking mainly on the level of sort of big ideas, sort of the principles that the text is getting across. And I won't have too much space or too much time to talk to specific application for, for down to like individual cases. That's something that I encourage you to explore, though. This, these are topics that are relevant to all of us. I think all of us in this room are somewhere on the spectrum of married, dating, or single. And so this passage is relevant to everybody here. And so ask the hard questions. I'll try to address a couple of them, but most of them will go unanswered. And so I, I, I ask that you know, f- you'd feel free to email the elders 
elders at trinitylink.com or approach a, a mature believer that you know has really immersed themselves in these topics and, and hash them out. So American ideas around marriage and romance have changed a ton in a really, really short amount of time. And the reason why is because of something called the sexual revolution. This took place in the, the 60s and the 70s. And the, the sexual revolution changed us as a people. It changed us as a people. At the time, the phrase that, that some of the activists were using is they, they said that we were becoming sexually liberated. And what that meant for them is that the pleasure of sex was now being uh, disentangled from any kind of commitment that, that would otherwise go with it in the past. And a, a number of different laws and a number of different like, technological advances made that happen, right? So we had the advent of the pill. We also had the passing of Roe v. Wade, which was the, the court case that legalized abortion. And so in those cases, romance began to become disentangled from, from children. Children became sort of optional. In addition to that, we had a massive rise in the production of pornography. And so that changed us as well. Because what, what the rise of pornography started to do is it, it made it so that we started to, to the pleasure of sex, I would say, got disentangled from the intimacy of sex. And then finally, the, the other big law that was passed was no-fault divorce. There's a Princeton philosopher that I've been recently getting into, and he has a phrase where he says, the laws of yesterday become the culture of today. And so let's talk about how all these massive changes that happened really rapidly, these laws and technological advances, 40 years later, how did the laws and technology of yesterday become the culture of today? Let's talk about that a little bit. So Eli Finkel is a professor of psychology at Northwestern. He calls the culture we're living in the age of the self-expressive marriage. And what he means by that is when you're, when you're looking for a spouse, you're looking for someone who is going to make you into the best version of yourself. You're looking for someone who is going to help you express kind of who you are. And that's kind of, kind of the ideal. A spouse is someone who is supposed to help you reach your potential. And so here in America, we have a culture that's, that's not so much focused on the person who's being loved and they're good. It's not focused on the beloved. It's focused on the lover, right? It's a self-expressive romantic culture. And some of this obviously is like not all the effects of this have been bad. Like guys, if you're looking for a spouse, finding someone who supports you is not a bad idea, Right. But there are other ways in which it's had some really, really detrimental effects. So here in the United States, we have taken this to a whole other level. We have begun to treat romance and marriage as a kind of consumerism. We have turned this thing into a market. What do I mean by that? I mean that we have begun to treat people as though they are possible purchases that we either you know, place an order on or discard. We've begun to try out potential mates, either sexually or just romantically. If they work out long-term, hey, great. Maybe we ratify this thing with a marriage certificate, but why rush things, right? It's gotten to the point where there's literally an app that some of you are familiar with. It's called Tinder, where you can page through potential mates, and you swipe one way to alert them to your interest that you'd like to go on a casual date, or swipe another way to, to discard them and move on to the next person in the queue. We have turned love and romance into a marketplace. Because it's all about the consumer, right? Polina Aronson, she's a, a Russian-American essayist, and she agrees. She, she says that, that this consumeristic culture 
really has permeated American romance. And so what she calls American romantic culture, she calls it a regime of choice. And basically what she means for that, by, by that is that for Americans, romance isn't this thing where you're like swept up in it and you're, you're swept away by care for the beloved. Like there's, there's not a lot of tragic lovers in the United States, right? Instead, it is totally centered on sort of the experience of the lover And what she says happens, we end up getting a culture of self-absorption without self-sacrifice. Self-absorption without self-sacrifice. There's another journalist that said this, modern American relationships have been shaped by that most star-spangled of values, individualism. Anthony Kennedy former Supreme Court justice, he gave an opinion on marriage during the Obergefell case, and he spoke for most Americans when he gave a description of marriage. So, so hear the way he describes marriage in his opinion, okay? Because I think he's speaking for how, how most of us within the culture have sort of been told we need to think. So this is him describing marriage. Marriage is about fulfillment. It's about realizing your aspirations It's about defining and expressing our identity. And then this one really caught me. He said, marriage is about autonomy. Autonomy. Freedom without responsibility. That was fascinating to me. Absent from Justice Kennedy's opinion was anything about marriage's contribution to society. Absent from his opinion was anything about the place of marriage and rearing children. That's not part of the calculus anymore. Marriage isn't about anything except the lovers. So to sum it up, what is marriage about for American culture? It's about us. Marriage has become about us. And now it would be one thing if the results of all this cultural shift, if the results had been like happiness and fulfillment, right? That would be one thing. But statistically, Americans are more lonely than ever, and that goes for the ones who are in relationships. This cultural shift has not helped us. There's a scholar named Mary Eberstadt who has done a ton of research on the way that the sexual revolution has failed to accomplish almost every single one of its original goals, including the liberation of women. Most of the movements within the sexual revolution have actually given more power to men within relationships. We as a culture have been damaged, and most of it is so dyed in the wool that we can't even notice it anymore. We've made marriage about us, and it's actually been to our harm. So is there hope for marriage? I think there is, and I think it's found in changing some of our ideas about what marriage is about. So in today's passage, Jesus says a number of things that will sort of shift our ideas, not only of marriage, but actually of singleness as well. And so if we can begin to to adopt these paradigm shifts, I think the result is going to be that we're going to get more tapped into the purpose of our singleness, the purpose of our marriages, and it's going to do a lot of good not only for us, but for the world around us. So here's the gist of what we're going to be talking about. We need to see that both marriage and singleness— are about expressing the image of God. And so we're going to see three important paradigm shifts that we need to to have so that we can live into this reality. The first paradigm shift is that marriage isn't about us. It's actually about something 
bigger than ourselves. So let's reread verses 1 through 6. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Quick note, Jesus is now on his way to Jerusalem. He's now leaving the Galilee region. His ministry in Galilee has now come to an end. He is headed to Jerusalem, which has incredible significance. That's not going to factor in this text, but it's a nerdy little detail that I couldn't help but say, because it's important. He's headed to Jerusalem, which means he's headed to the cross. All right. So, and the Pharisees came up to him, and they tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So here's a conversation that's breaking out between the Pharisees and Jesus. And this is a hot button issue. Like the cable news networks, they would have had like the split screen thing with like one dude on one side, another guy on the other, talking over each other for a half an hour. That would have happened on the issue of divorce at this time. And and the reason why there's two major camps, and there were two rabbis, two Jewish teachers that kind of headed up both of these camps on the topic of divorce. So the one was Shammai. So Shammai probably had the closest view to Jesus's view, to the view that Jesus is about to roll out. Shammai believed that that you do not get divorced, but if there's marital infidelity, then yeah, you need to pursue a divorce. That's one view. There's another view that was taken by a rabbi named Hillel, and his was by far the more popular view, and we're about to see why. So Hillel believed a man could divorce his wife for literally any reason, and that included burning dinner. And I I word it that way on purpose, that a man could divorce his wife. And the reason why is because this culture was highly patriarchal. It was very male-dominated, and women in marriages did not have a lot of agency. So they were not going to be the ones to be pursuing divorce. That wasn't a just thing, but it was the case in the culture. And so you had these two rabbis arguing about how men should be be treating their wives. That's just how the debate was going on. So Hillel literally believed that if for whatever reason— your wife has become displeasing to you. Man, that's a broken product. Go find yourself a new one. Hillel's view is kind of consumeristic in and of itself. The Pharisees, like most of the men at the time, were pretty into Hillel's view. So they interact with Jesus on it. They challenge him on it. They ask him to, to weigh in. And what Jesus does is really important. The way Jesus answers the, the question is just as important as what his answer is. So the way he answers is just as important as what his answer is. And the reason why is because we're about to learn how Jesus reads his Bible. When he wants to figure out, when he wants to communicate God's intention, he goes back to the beginning. This is hugely important for how we as married folk within this congregation need to think about marriage. It's also really relevant to, some, to one of the hottest debates, not only within the church, but within our culture. And that's the... the the definition of marriage and whether it can include the idea of same-sex marriage. Jesus' answer is going to be highly important for how we answer that question. And it's going to reveal sort of why we at Trinity have taken the historic view on that question. So obviously, easy topic. So this is how Jesus reads his Bible. What Jesus does is he goes back to the design plan. He goes back to a passage at the very opening of the Bible that describes the purpose 
for which God created human relationships. And Jesus' mind, that, that purpose might have been obscured. It might be broken in the world we live in. We might have lost sight of it. But he thinks that if you are his disciple, your calling is to lean into what God desires. That your calling is to live according to the intentions of God, live by the rule of God. So Jesus goes back to the beginning to figure out what the rule of God is. That's what I'm going to have us do too. We've seen this a couple times in the book of Matthew. Whenever Matthew quotes a verse, you always end up with like one finger in the New Testament and then another finger in the Old Testament. Because when Matthew quotes a verse or when he quotes Jesus quoting a verse, it's never just a verse. It's like the whole context. So you end up having to go back and read the whole thing. So we're going to do that right now. I'm going to put it up on the screen. Can we have the first slide? Yeah, there we go. So Jesus quotes this verse first. And then after that, he's going to quote one from Genesis 2. And he's doing some theological work here, right? He's putting these two things together to to draw out a conclusion. So we'll tackle this together. This is Genesis 1, 26 through 27. That's what Jesus quotes in verse 4. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We have this brief poem. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So here's the idea behind this. If you were here last summer, you might have heard our Kingdom Come series. This verse was really, really key for that series. Basically, humanity has this very important role. We are made in the image of God. So what does that mean? It's interesting that the word there, image, everywhere else where you encounter that word in the Hebrew, it means idol. Idol. And the idea that the author of Genesis is getting across is that humans are for the true God what idols are for false gods. With an idol, you know, what you do, you take it, you place it in a temple, and you would know that the idol is not actually the deity, right? But the idol communicated something about the deity. The idol communicated something. It represented something about that God. And so when you encountered the idol, you were moved to worship. And and basically what, what Genesis is saying is that humans were made to be that for Yahweh. Humans are obviously not God, right? But being human was meant to say something about who God is. Humans were meant to represent God to the world. Like you all were supposed to be able to look at each other, to look at your neighbor, and instantly for your mind to think, how good is God? How cool is God? How wonderful is God? And all all over, wherever humanity is, the glory of God is being proclaimed as humans act with creativity and work and create relationships and families and civilization. It was meant to be this constantly spreading image of the true God over the entire face of the earth. Being human is a really noble thing. And that was our purpose. We were made to express the image of God. And so what Jesus wants us to see in particular, too, is that it isn't just one sex that images God. Instead, male and female both are made with equal dignity, value, worth, and no one of them expresses the image of God. The idea is that the whole of humanity expresses the image of God. And so there's this deep significance when 
two biologically compatible units come together. There's significance in a marriage. A deep, symbolic significance. Because it is the bringing together of the diversity of being human. Two biologically compatible parts coming together as a unity. And then Jesus develops it more. He jumps to Genesis 2, so that's our next slide, ending of Genesis 2. I'm not going to read the whole scene, but essentially this is the moment where the author of Genesis is portraying the union of Adam and Eve. And what the author wants us to see is that Adam and Eve are like two parts of one whole. They're, they're, they're fitted to each other. And when they come together, it's the coming together of the, these two parts into this expression of the image of God. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So marriage, by definition, is this thing where two people are joining together. And it's symbolized most profoundly. Like this, the, the biggest symbol of this is intercourse, right? Sex. But it goes far beyond that to include their entire lives. That when these two folks come together, they're joining their very households together. The bank accounts are coming together. They're sharing a refrigerator, a closet. That might not be evenly divided, right? But they're sharing a closet. You know, it's the bringing together of these two households. And so what, what's going on is, is more than just sharing a house. It says, leave your father and mother. Many ancient Near Eastern cultures shared like a living space with a mother and father. The point is not the living space. The point isn't the house. It's the household. That the primary loyalty of that husband and wife gets removed from their parents and moved to each other. And they begin to form something new. In addition to sharing the fridge and the closet and the house and the bank accounts, they'll share whatever children come from that union. And that's a big part of what marriage is for, is to guarantee the right of children to a mother and father. But more happens in a marriage. So a marriage requires an enormous amount of self-giving love. Like to make a marriage work, the husband and wife, they have to start sacrificing for each other or it's going to be miserable, right? So they aren't just living for themselves anymore. They, suddenly they're, they're having to give up their preferences for the sake of the other person. They start to give themselves away. Their life becomes about caring for and nurturing and submitting to and loving each other, even by denying themselves. And when that happens, it says something. Marriage talks. The image of God is expressed in this unique way. So here's why. So what does marriage, what is the dynamic between a, hu- a, 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 a husband and wife, what does it say about God? What does that relationship of self-giving love say about God? It says that he's covenantal. That's a big theological word. Let's talk about what it means. So what it means for God to be covenantal. Early on in the Bible story, God makes a covenant with his people. What that means is that God commits himself to them through a promise. Through a binding promise. And they're expected to, to be faithful to him. He makes a promise to be faithful to his people and to bring about their good. And he keeps that promise over the course of the Bible's story despite one infidelity after another to the point where many of the prophets of Israel, when they're describing God, they're they're literally saying, like, God thinks of himself as a cuckolded husband 
who will not give up on his wife. God keeps his promise. We see this again at the Last Supper. When Jesus is about to be betrayed, he sits down with his disciples and they drink wine together. And Jesus tells them that the wine in this cup, it represents my blood. And he says that because he's about to pour his blood out to create a new covenant. To create a new way of relating to the Lord. God, when he makes a covenant, he keeps it and he does it through costly love. And that's what marriage communicates. When we start to live that way, when we we stop making marriage about ourselves, it taps us into a deeper meaning. When we realize that marriage isn't about ourselves, we, we stop trying to get the most out of each other while giving the least of ourselves. When we realize that marriage isn't about ourselves, we, come, we become partners in something greater. I think that's what many of our marriages are miss, missing. We are too fixated on what our partners are giving us that we are missing out on what our marriages can give the world. Marriage preaches the gospel. Here's one of those moments where I want to be sensitive. Because I realize that there are many of you in this room who desire that kind of a marriage, and your spouse doesn't. And I know that can be wildly painful. And first, I would say, my heart breaks for you. But I also want you to know that if you remain faithful to the way of Jesus, even when your spouse isn't, you will also communicate something about God. You will also tap into something about God. Namely, that he doesn't give up. That he pursued us when we were not pursuing him. And on a practical level, I hope that you will know that we are here to support you in that and to be there for you. So for those of us who are married, marriage isn't about us, it's about something bigger than ourselves. So the next paradigm shift, this one leads naturally from the first, disciples don't look for reasons to divorce, they look for reasons not to. So verses 7 through 9. The Pharisees said to Jesus, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send his wife away? Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So there's something operating behind this whole conversation. There's a passage of scripture that's sort of in the background of of this whole debate that's going on at the time. It's a law that's in the Old Testament that's talking about when a man divorces his wife, if he can then take her back. And I want to talk about this law a little bit, and it's going to sound super nerdy at first, and then I think it'll become clear why we're going to talk about it. So, Yeah, thank you so much. So when a man takes a wife and marries her, if she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife— and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if he dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife, 
after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. When it's hard to sleep at night, some of the Old Testament laws are a great way to help that. I'm kidding. But like, so, so I know this sounds really kind of abstract and out there. Let me kind of explain what's going on here. So again, we've talked about how this was a highly patriarchal culture that went back years and years prior to this as well. There are some laws that are relevant wherever you are, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I can put that law into any, any culture anywhere, and it will be very, very relevant. All right, so that's one kind of law. There's another kind of law that's more situational, right? It's, it's trying to address a problem in a community. That's what we have here. So we have a community in the ancient Near East where, where men are, are just, you know, bringing wives in and divorcing them for ridiculous reasons. And this passage is here to put some sort of a control on that. Okay, so basically what's going on is that when a man would divorce his wife, when he was thinking, oh, you know, I found some indecency in her, which I think the passage is supposed to be talking about sexual immorality. In Jesus's day, it meant burning dinner, but whatever. So he says, oh, I found an indecency. I would like to divorce. Suddenly this law comes to mind. And now he has to think twice. Because if he's going to divorce her, he cannot take her back which means he can't use divorce as a way of controlling her. It means that he can't send her out and then arbitrarily bring her back. It means that he has to take seriously what he's about to do and has to give a really good reason for it. And so it's creating this disincentive for divorce. It's discouraging it within the community. Instead, he has this, this check on his behavior So before he destroys the relationship, he is that much more likely to try to reconcile the relationship. Right? So what the Pharisees have done is they've taken a passage meant to discourage divorce. And in fact, it's actually even beyond this. So this is another kind of cool note. The certificate of divorce thing, that was also a protection for the woman. So again, in this highly male-dominated society... Like, we live in a day, day and age where the natural strength that comes with being male is less relevant to work and to industry, not so in the past. And so you, for, for many women, they needed to be part of some kind of a household to survive, right? And so what the certificate of divorce thing did is when a man would divorce his wife, he'd have to hand her the certificate, which would be a way for her to prove that she can be remarried. And if she didn't have that certificate, then she would basically have to either prostitute herself or starve. Like, really, really grim culture, right? So God is putting this thing in place to hold men accountable to the women that they promised to be held accountable to. So the Pharisees take this passage that's clearly meant to discourage divorce, and they make it into a passage that encourages divorce, Right? Do you see the way that they read it? They say, well, Moses commanded us to send her away if she becomes displeasing to us. And Jesus is like, are you serious? That's not even what it says, man. Like, the passage is there to address your hardness of heart. Because there will be times in marriage where you are hard-hearted, so hard-hearted that you're going to miss God's purpose for marriage and send away this wife. And so this passage is here to take care of her. You've taken something that discourages divorce. And you've made it a passage that encourages divorce. 
So Jesus thinks this is super backwards. He tells them that they weren't meant to look for reasons to divorce. They were meant to look for reasons not to. I think this message is really relevant for us today. We sort of live in the age of of no-fault divorce, and so many, many Americans get divorced. It's just under 40%. Infidelity is often a reason that can destroy a marriage that's a breaking of, of the promise. What are some other reasons, though? Well, a lot of the reasons for us in the United States don't have anything to do with the marriage promise being broken. It's disagreements. It's problems in the bedroom. It's money issues. It's lack of communication. So when you look at the data, most of it comes down to couples slowly, over time, picking out reasons to dislike each other and then making those reasons to divorce each other. In 1986, some researchers put together a couple experiments, and, and basically what they did, it was the, the Gottmans, Julie and John Gottman, basically what they, they wanted to do was identify what it was that made a relationship crumble and what it was that, that sort of made a relationship work. And so it's, it kind of sounds silly, but what they did is they actually made a fake bed and breakfast, and they invited couples to stay in the bed and breakfast and sign off on the fact that they knew they were going to be surveilled the whole time. And they would, like, stay in this you know, little hotel for a weekend under 24-7 supervision, right? And so what, what, what they were able to do was to analyze the way that couples react, the healthy couples, and then obviously some were unhealthy. And so what they, they recorded was this. They recorded that the, the healthy couples sort of looked for reasons to connect to their spouse. So they called these bids for connection, bids for connection. So for instance, you'd have like a guy looking out the window and he would see a bird, and his wife has no interest in birds. But he would be like, oh my goodness, it's a, you know, a northern cardinal. And his wife, instead of being like, why, do you, why is this important to me? Would be like, oh, wow, that's so beautiful. Wow, that's really cool. And so she would receive his bid for connection, whether or not she's really into northern cardinals, right? So she would receive his bid for connection. Another thing that healthy couples did is they, they tried to avoid criticism. They didn't look for reasons to criticize. They looked for reasons not to. So another thing they would observe is a wife approaching her husband about his chronic lateness or whatever, and she wouldn't be like, so late again, let's talk about it. Like it was you know, something way more measured, and hey, I know that there's a lot going on. And I want to help you with those things as much as I can, but I want you to know that the lateness has been a frustration to me. Is there something that, some way that we together can work on this? So it wasn't looking for a reason to criticize. It was a partnership from the beginning to end. The unhealthy couples would do the opposite, though. Those bids for connection would be consistently rejected. So you have the bird guy. He mentions the, the cardinal, and the wife would sort of like shake out the newspaper and be like, please don't interrupt, and reject his bid for connection. And when that was happening consistently, it was making the relationship crumble. Across the board, the couples that ended in divorce were the ones that rejected the bids for connection. All the couples at that, at that bed and breakfast, like if they, if they rejected 70% of those bids for connection, six years later, all of them were divorced. It's because divorce isn't the result of a one-time thing. It's the result of a culture in the home slowly crumbling. So these couples, they looked for reasons to dislike each other. And over time they became reasons to divorce. But if we're going to follow the way of Jesus, we won't look for reasons to divorce, we'll look for reasons not to. 
So here's another one of those moments where we need sensitivity. There are times to divorce. There are reasons that the scriptures give. There are things that happen that, that destroy the promise of marriage, that destroy the covenant. So Jesus right now, he's talking to an audience only of men. So he brings up sexual immorality. Paul, later on in the New Testament, brings up abandonment. If Jesus was talking to an audience of only women, he might have been talking about Exodus 21, 10 through 11, that talks about neglect and abuse. So there are, there are these different things that break the marriage covenant. But what Jesus is trying to get across is that even when the marriage covenant is broken, you try to exhaust all other possibilities aside from divorce. I want to be sensitive to the fact that some of you in this room have had to make that really, really hard decision, and you've done it righteously. And you've experienced what it's like when one become two. And it it is hellish. And I'm so sorry. For those of us who are are still in marriages and are not at the point where our partners are unwilling to reconcile or whatever, I encourage you to follow the way of Jesus. Look for reasons not to divorce until it becomes clear that your spouse is only going to reject it. So we've been talking about the high calling of marriage, the beauty of marriage. We've been talking about the seriousness of it. So here's a question. Is marriage the only way to image God? No, right? Everyone say no. No, right. It's not the only way to image God. Just trying to keep you awake. It's very warm in here. So no, it is absolutely emphatically not the only way to image God. Verses 10 through 12. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, It's better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been made so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs also who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. So, like, this part is kind of hilarious to me. So you have Jesus describing the high calling of marriage, and the the disciples come to him, and they're like, good grief. Is that seriously the truth? I'd rather not marry. That sounds terrible. I was just in this for like kids and regular sex. I didn't know that I was going to have to like deny myself, you know? And so they, now we don't completely know. It might be actually that the disciples are joking. So a lot of, a lot of commentators think that the disciples are kind of elbowing Jesus a little bit and mocking the Pharisees. That, that would be hilarious. But nobody knows. Nobody knows what they're actually doing here. But the point is, they say this thing about, like, man, I, that's, if marriage is that serious, I'd rather not get married. And Jesus takes them really seriously and says, actually, there's a lot of truth to what you just said. There's a lot of truth to what you just said. And then he goes into this thing about eunuchs, which is just so alienating for us in, in like, modern culture. Here's what's going on here. So he's talking about someone who's incapable of, of sex, right? So some people would be born with a defect. At the time, there would also be kings who would have harems. And so when they would bring on a male servant to tend to him, they would castrate him because that way he wouldn't be messing around with the king's harem. So those are the two first categories, the ones by birth, the ones made eunuchs by men. And then Jesus has this really startling phrase where he says there's this other category of people who have made themselves eunuchs, who have castrated themselves for the kingdom. They have ruled out sex for themselves, either temporarily or permanently, 
They've chosen a celibate life. And they're using that celibate life to serve me. For a long time in the American church, we have been functionally idolizing marriage. Marriage is wildly important. It's the norm. Statistically, most people will be married. But there are many churches, and I don't know, maybe us as well, who speak highly of marriage and very rarely speak highly of singleness. It's as though you can't possibly be a full human being without marriage. And as a result, there have been a whole lot of single people who feel like second-class citizens. As a result, we've really failed oftentimes to train people in how to be celibate until they're married. Because celibacy is the expectation for all of us. Unless we enter into this really special relationship between a biological male and a biological female, all of us are called to give ourselves for the sake of the kingdom through the way of celibacy. And in our marriages, we have failed a lot of single people. Singleness is an amazing thing. Jesus at one point says that, that in the new creation, folks will neither be married nor will they be given in marriage. In other words, marriage is a symbol of the nature of God. It's a symbol of Christ and his bride, but eventually we're going to witness the reality and the symbol is not going to be necessary anymore. So marriage does not make it into the new creation. And the way that singleness gets portrayed between Jesus and Paul later on in the New Testament is that it is a way of life where you have chosen to anticipate the new creation by giving yourself entirely to the kingdom now. It's this amazing calling. It is a picture of somebody pouring everything out for the sake of the kingdom. And inevitably what they end up doing is they begin to create these networks of close friendships. Marriage doesn't make it into the new creation, but friendship does. For a long time, there's been a lot of silence about this, but there's been a population of people that are becoming more vocal. A population of people that that have become a challenge, not only to the church, but to the culture as a whole. I'm talking about a good challenge. And as they become more more vocal, what they're doing is they're, they're bringing more visibility to the need within the church to talk about singleness the way Jesus did. I'm talking about Christians who are celibate and same-sex attracted. And in obedience to Jesus, they have chosen to live a life of faithful celibacy. And they're challenging not only the church, but the culture. So they're doing both. They're challenging the culture because we live in a day and age where people believe that without sex and romance, you cannot possibly live a satisfying, important life. Like, you're celibate? Are you even human? I don't even, like, how are you functioning right now? That's literally how our culture thinks about this topic, right? I mean, I'm joking, but it's true. We, we think that without sex and romance, like, how can you even live a fully actualized human life And all the while, we're forgetting that there's a really, really important central figure in our faith who lived a celibate life. Guys, Jesus, the Lord, lived a celibate life. And like I I defy anybody, Christian or not Christian, to say that he lived anything but a fully actualized life. 
This same population of celibate, same-sex attracted Christians are also challenging the church in a very healthy way by making us conscious of the fact that because Jesus is God in the flesh, he lived the most truly human life there ever was, and he was single. They're correcting our idolization of marriage. And so as they become more vocal, they have brought visibility not only to themselves, but to all the faithful, single Christians, gay or straight, who have been serving our congregations faithfully for, for years, largely quiet. While their congregations celebrate the marriage between man and wife more loudly than they celebrate the marriage between Christ and his bride. That should stop with us. May that not be true of us. Jesus says that celibacy isn't just about what you can't do. It's about what you can do. Celibacy isn't just about what you can't have. It's about what you can give. It isn't just a limitation. It's a vocation. And it is the calling of all of us who are unmarried. So a practical note on this. One of the things I've been thinking about a lot as, as I consider singleness as I, I was studying for this text and as I think through a few friends that I have who are same-sex attracted and celibate Christians, what it makes me think is that we as a church ha- have to recover the place of friendship. We have to recover the place of friendship. It's interesting. There's tons of studies being done lately about the health of marriages when the two spouses have deeply committed, intimate friendships outside of the marriage and when they don't. And across the board, the marriages where the spouses have deeply committed friendships outside of the marriage are healthier. And the reason why is because spouses were never meant to be everything to each other. They were meant to be spouses, right? But we've put so much weight on marriage. And it isn't the way of Jesus. One of the most countercultural things that we can do as a church is to be really good friends to each other. To not give up on each other. To not let disagreements disentangle our relationships. But instead, in the name of the gospel, working it out. Sharing cups of coffee. Stopping in at each other's places, being a part of our children's lives, telling each other our stories, becoming so comfortable with each other that we become comfortable with sharing silence. That's what we need. And that can happen here. It already is. But I want to point out to you that it isn't just what the church needs, it's what the world needs. The world is lacking friendship. They have forgotten how to be friends. Social media, the atomization of culture, the sexual revolution, we have forgotten how to be friends. And the church can recover it if we're faithful to Jesus. So marriage and singleness are both ways of expressing our purpose as humans, which is to live for the glory of God in the life of the world. I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon that here at the beginning of this passage, we have this whole 
discussion that Jesus has about marriage and about expressing the image of God by either giving yourself to your spouse or giving yourself to the kingdom. And right at the beginning of this passage, like I mentioned, Jesus has just set his face toward Jerusalem. That for the sake of Christ's bride, he is about to give it all. For the sake of his bride, he is about to lay down his life for the church. And so it's him that we worship. Sorry I went over. I'm the worst for doing that. It was a lot to talk about. So I'm going to pray. We're going to worship, have communion, and then we are going to baptize some people, which is awesome. So let's pray. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for keeping most of us awake in a really warm room. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to your bride. God, I pray that we would be a congregation where friendship flourishes. That we would be a congregation where we are linked arm in arm for the sake of the kingdom and calling each other to that life. Because we know, Lord, that in the new creation, they will neither be married nor given in marriage. But we know that friendship will last. We know that the community of the church will last. We want to be a part of that. We love you, Jesus. Keep us faithful to you. Amen.